0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ag Innovation News Podcast, presented by the Agricultural Utilization Research Institute of Minnesota. I'm Dan Skogan, your host for the Ag Innovation News Podcast, and guests on the Ag Innovation News Podcast will be shedding light on innovations and value-added agriculture, will highlight important voices and work that's being done throughout the Minnesota ag sector, and educate the public about resources and organizations that support Minnesota agriculture. Today, we'll be visiting with Brett Olson. Brett is the co-founder and creative director at Renewing the Countryside. Brett, welcome to Ag Innovation News podcast.
1: Thank you, Dan. It's great to be here. If you would, just
0: take a moment and tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background.
1: I was brought up as a, a preacher's kid and not just any kind of preacher, but he was a church planter for the Baptist General Conference. We lived in Colorado, Wyoming, South Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Alaska. And we went from community to community helping mostly rural towns start new churches. And so I grew up with a dad who was a, a community organizer and finding talent where he could and, and really trying to elevate and show off the, the you know the the talent in the communities that he he grew up in. And so I've always been interested and in, grew up in small communities. And so that was sort of my entryway into renewing the countryside from a personal level. But from a professional level, I I was a studio art major and after college started a small advertising and marketing studio. And at the exact same time, My wife, who's the other co-founder, Jan Joannidis, the executive director, was working on a master's thesis in best agricultural management in the state of Minnesota. And about the same time, we came across this book called Renewing the Countryside that was published in the Netherlands. And it was really uncanny how there was a lot of the same stories that were in both around land management and sustainability. But they expanded into the arts and to main street businesses and activists and musicians. And we thought rather than take all of that work and just relegate it to a black book in the basement on a shelf, never to be referenced again, that we would turn it into that kind of an experience called Renewing the Countryside, Minnesota, really to kind of take those amazing stories that she had wrote about and package them in a way for an urban audience who may not have any real interest or idea of what's going on out there in the countryside. But if you put it in a, in a shiny book with lots of glossy pictures, you can get them to read it. So a little bit of the background of how I,
0: I got here. You laid out quite a bit of information about what Renewing the Countryside might be doing, but tell us more about the organization itself, Renewing the Countryside, what it's doing and what its mission, what it's hoping to do
1: out of that, telling stories, which I think is really a powerful way of motivating people. I mean, back to my childhood, is filled with stories to encourage people to act or do a certain thing. But then at a certain point, you have to add maybe some technical assistance. You can get people fired up, but how do you kind of move them to those best practices? So Renewing the Countryside started to hear from these rural communities saying, Hey, we really like that thing. How do we do something like that in our community? And so we went out, found the expertise, found different people for our group and started to develop programs around rural revitalization, everything from tourism to how to market your farm business to pretty much the wide variety, kind of like what that book would have represented in the 40 different stories. We tried to start to provide technical assistance in those areas as communities came to us and said, hey, can you help us out with this?
0: Well, with a 20-year history, you have to have some success stories that you're very proud of.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. One of them is coming up here. We have a food show. It looks like a food show, but it's actually an ag show. We have 80 to 100, sometimes more people that are food makers from the upper Midwest, Minnesota primarily, but Wisconsin and Iowa, who not only produce their food or beer, wine, spirits, whatever, in those states, but also source the ingredients from those states, right? So taking local food to a more granular place where not only is it made here, but it's actually from here. And so we've done that now for 10 years, half of our nonprofit status. And that's a great partnership with the Southern Minnesota Initiative Foundation, the Department of Ag, this year, compere the Ag Lender. And ARI has been a partner on this since the very beginning. And so we're super excited to launch that marketplace.
0: Brett, I want to circle back to that at some point here in our discussion, because I think listeners would like to know more about that and how to get involved. But tell me a little more about your responsibilities at Renewing the Countryside. Is it a two-person operation or how is it governed? How is it put together?
1: started off as one person my wife who is the executive director jan Joanidas. and it's ebbed and flowed over the years but we just hired a new employee gary and he's going to be heading up a granting program that we're in charge of in the twin cities for urban agriculture but the grand total is i believe we have 15 employees and through various contracts and other goings on we have a couple dozen contractors that are also working with us
0: And of course, as a 501c3, there are some requirements just on how you do business.
1: Yeah, right. I think the fun term is encumbered funds. You can look at your books and say, look, we have a mythical $10. We can go do whatever we want. But actually, all but 30 cents of it are very specifically encumbered to be used in a very specific way. Running a nonprofit is hard. I mean, like I said, I ran a small business myself. And if someone gave me a mythical $10, I could spend it however I wanted. We've got a board of directors who also are really both Jan and myself and the other 13 employees. That's really their boss. For our listeners'
0: sake, when Brett's talking about encumbered funds, another word would be designated. And then the other piece of the puzzle is we don't want to lose your nonprofit status. So you're very careful to make sure that all funds that you are dealing with are channeling in the right direction.
1: We get regular audits as just part of our doing business expense. We, we make sure that we have outside audits. That's pretty common across nonprofits, at least once they get past a certain size, it's kind of like having somebody balance your checkbook at the end of the year, I'm going to put
0: you on the spot a little bit on projects themselves. In the 20 years, Renewing the Countryside has had many projects. Can you point to one or two that really stand out as real markers for the organization?
1: I'll give you one that has been really successful and I'm really proud of, and one that didn't work the way we wanted it to. Many years ago, we'd been working on a lot of sustainable tourism or agritourism projects, and we started a web-based, location-based tourism site called Green Routes. It was a directory, mostly in Minnesota, of green destinations, and it went along great. We had these maps that you folded up and put in your car, remember those? And we couldn't find enough funding to keep that afloat, even though it was a great idea and you see that now in multiple websites online. We were ahead of the curve and ahead of the technology and just couldn't sustain it. And So I was really proud of it. It was one of my favorite programs. I just couldn't sustain it. And that was, you know, in response to people saying, how do we get those tourism dollars into restaurants that serve local food or hotels that don't use harsh chemicals or things along those lines? More recently, people have been really talking about land access and how do beginning farmers, especially farmers who have been traditionally underserved by lending and other USDA programs. How do we get them onto land in a durable and fair tenure or tenure is control of land, whether it's leasing or, or owning. And we've been working on the Farmland Access Hub, so you can go to that farmlandaccesshub.org with a number of partners for, I don't know, five years or so. And we've been really successful in helping beginning farmers and traditionally underserved farmers onto the land and in situations where they can really be confident that, that they can grow and, and will be treated fairly. And so that's been a great success.
0: Brett, I'm enjoying our conversation. I want to talk to you about slow money. I want to talk to you about your Feast magazine want to get some more information on the food show that's coming up. But first, I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to the Ag Innovation News podcast presented by the Agricultural Utilization Research Institute of Minnesota. And we're visiting today with Brett Olson. Brett is the co-founder and creative director at Renewing the Countryside. So let's go to Slow Money Minnesota. I went to your website and that one really caught my attention. Tell our listeners about Slow Money Minnesota.
1: So there's this loose chapter base out of Slow Money A national philosophy, really. It's a kind of a movement thing. Woody Tesh wrote a book. He was a personal financial advisor and was really looking at how people were moving money in the marketplace and found that it really wasn't to the best interests of everyone. It was often in the best interest of the one person with the money. And so he wrote a book about slow money, where I think the the tag was something like investing as if food and farmland matter. Something like that. So he's really interested in moving parts of people's investment portfolio from the big black box of Wall Street, where your money kind of turns into this thing called the Dow. You're not really sure what it is, but it upsets you when you listen to it on Money Matters, and you don't know why. So to kind of reinvest it in, in your own community and specifically around food farming and land use. I was just actually at a really interesting regenerative food systems investment forum in, in Denver, Colorado a couple of weeks ago, and Woody was on to something. There's the, the, the room was filled with 400 investment types who are actively looking at how to invest in farmers And not just farmland, these weren't land speculators. These were people who were interested in the practices on the farmland. So that's a little bit about its origin story. Renewing the Countryside kind of did a couple of events, and we haven't had one in a while, but we haven't had a real pressing need for one but often you'll have startups, maybe a new food business or a, a farm or something come to do a pitch. You have to be careful because asking non-accredited investors can be tricky, but do a pitch for what they're trying to do and what kind of capital, whether it's a debt or an equity raise would be for, for their idea. We did that. At the same time, we had to grow a farmer fund that we were raising money for, and we raised just north of $100,000 that we... Then turned into a loan fund that's administered by the Southern Minnesota Initiative Foundation, and I believe that's all loaned out right now. But in fifteen thousand dollar mini grants or operating grants, we kind of pegged that number to the cost of a high tunnel because in order to get the equip grant, eqip equip grant from USDA, you have to build the thing and submit receipts. Well, a lot of farmers don't have 15K sitting around. They can come to the Grow a Farmer Fund and use that money for just a few months and then submit. So we raised a lot of that money from individuals from $500 to $5,000, $50 in order to set up that fund. And that was pretty amazing for the slow money community in Minnesota.
0: You may have answered my question. I was curious how Renewing the Countryside and or some of the projects you work on are funded.
1: We're an organization. We're not member-based. So of our individual donors, that comes in usually from donor drives and then through sponsorships of events like, say, Compere sponsoring Feast that's coming up. Or we have health partners who sponsors our 12-day exhibit on local food at the state fair with cooking demos and kids activities. But the vast majority, at least 60%, maybe 70, comes from federal grants or contracts with the federal government. Things that we on the ground have a unique position to do projects that they'd like to do that they don't have the capacity for.
0: And most of your work is with entrepreneurs and small businesses, or is it with established revenue producing businesses?
1: Usually we're really at the beginning stages working with businesses. So occasionally we will help somebody along. we worked with an established farm that had a fairly large wholesale and retail market in order to expand their business through some infrastructure and help them do a capital raise for that. But for the most part, Working with individual farmers, a beginning farmer on making sure that their finances are in line and that they've got a good business plan and that they have the right resources to access finances and also come up with creative financing in order to bring the cost of farmland to a place where, you know, frankly, it will cash flow for a beginning farmer. So most of the time it's, it's with the small small farms.
0: Brett, we are kind of running out of time, but one way you spread the word or get information out is through your Feast magazine. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: That's so much fun. It goes back to that kind of advertising background that I have. We have a great team that does that. Once a year, it's a free magazine, really talks about the food system in the upper Midwest. And this year's cover story is on Red Cliff Commercial Fishery on the North Shore in Wisconsin. And we talk everything in that magazine from food hubs to seed saving. And it's all around this feast marketplace that comes up on November 4th. Then there's a little preview for that. And it's a great way to kind of just showcase what's fun. You know, like our we have a standing column called Last Call. This year, we have Tattersall Distillery made a whiskey out of Kernza, which I'm sure you've probably talked about on the show before, but it's a perennial wheatgrass developed in partnership with the University of Minnesota. So they made a whiskey and featured that in the magazine as well.
0: Brett, I certainly didn't think a PK would know what last call was all about.
1: <laughs> well, I'm going to plead the fifth.
0: Let's go back to the food show. When, where, what can we expect to see there?
1: November 4th, the Civic Center in Rochester, Minnesota, 10 to 4, there'll be 80 to 100 food makers from cheese to chocolate, local cheesemakers buying milk from local farmers. Chocolate Mademoiselle Mille, for example, uses honey as a sweetener in her chocolates. They are magnificent. And then wine, beer, cider, and spirits. Wineries in Minnesota are required to use fifty-one percent Minnesota fruit in their wines. So that's a that's definitely a local thing. And Vikra up in Duluth is also a great example in using wild foraged botanicals in their in their gin and things like that. And Far North Spirits up in Halleck is all a state grown rye. And it's really a, a celebration of the food we grow and turning it into the food we eat. Some things are not so easy, so there's a couple coffee makers, but they also are at least sourcing from fair trade and organic sources, and so we do allow for a little bit of creep on that.
0: Is it pre-registration? Do people have to let you know that they're coming?
1: You can go to local-feast.org, and there's a tab up there for tickets, and you can pre-purchase them, the wristbands for the alcohol tasting are $25 in advance, and the general admission is $10, and kids are free. And this year, being our 10th year, the, there's a little commemorative tasting cup for those alcohol wristband buyers. And I think there's almost 17 or 18 different adult beverages being represented. So that's a bargain and a half for
0: sure. Brett, I can't let you get out of here without a little bit of strategic thinking. What does the next five years look like for renewing the countryside?
1: That's always a good question, and and we really leave that up to our neighbors out here in the countryside to tell us where their barriers are and where their stressors are. One thing that we're really working on in that farmland access is coming up with strategies for creative financing. We did another capital raise to purchase an agricultural easement on a farm so that it would be affordable, not now, but into the future. It will always carry this easement still be just as productive land, just not as expensive to grow food. So, you know, honestly, you can either build equity in your land, and that's what farmers often do, or you can build equity in the money that you make off of that land. And if the land is cheaper, your profits should be higher. And I don't know any postmen that have a retirement plan in undelivered mail. So they use the money that they get from delivering that mail to make investments to to actually pay for that. So things like that are, I think that's going to be the next five years. There's going to be a massive shift in who owns the farmland. And I'd like to see it in new farmers, either immigrant farmers, beginning farmers, even the kids in multi-generational farms that have been there for a century. How do we get it into their hands at an affordable rate? That's going to be a big trick, and that's what we're going to be really focused on, I think.
0: And where can our listeners go to get more information about Renewing the Countryside?
1: countryside Renewingthecountryside.org. If you sign up for the rooster news to crow about, you will be able to keep up to date with everything that's going on, including those mini grants for urban ag, and we work on Feast and the Farmland Summit and agricultural easements, it'll all come through your inbox if you sign up there.
0: And I will attest to that. That's where I get it on a regular basis and always full of good information, Brett. Oh, good. I'm going to leave you with the final comments today. You've been a wonder to have on the show and I appreciate your time, but what do you want to leave our listeners with about renewing the countryside work that you're doing or anything else that you want our listeners to know about before we say goodbye?
1: Be the person your dog thinks you are and, and try to make the best next decision, whether that's in your food system. A lot of the work we do is, is trying to get some understanding between urban and rural folk and not always speaking the same language. And so that's what we're really trying to aim for. Brett, thanks for your time. Congratulations on a 20-year
0: anniversary and good luck in the future. You bet. Thanks for having me. We've been visiting with Brett Olson, co-founder and creative director at Renewing the Countryside. We want to thank him for joining us today, and we want to thank you for listening to the Ag Innovation News podcast presented by the Agricultural Utilization Research Institute of Minnesota. Thanks to my podcast crew of one, Lisa Martinez, AURI communications coordinator and editor of this production. To learn more about AURI, go to AURI.org.